power of your Holy Spirit, that I would decrease, that you would increase, God. Father, we, we thank you so much for your word that, that refines us and corrects us. God, we pray that you would give us conviction in how we are living uh, so often our lives without you, that we make our plans and our days with little account for the gospel and the kingdom. God, let it not be so for our church. We pray that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly today. God, we pray also that you would remind us of our frailty. We are not God. We are mere creatures. We serve a great creator, creator, the only sovereign, the one true God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. God, I pray that you would help us, remind us, oh God, that we are creatures, that we are frail. And because of that, God, you would teach us a heart of wisdom that we would live more faithfully with you. So God, I ask now that you would do more than we could possibly ask or imagine during this hour. Refine us, grow us to love you more. We ask this for our good and for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. On September 11th, 1918, uh, David Kerr, a college student, 20 years old, who dropped out of Columbia College uh, to fight in World War I. Uh, he was in uh, uh, France, and right before the American was going to lead their first offensive, he wrote a letter to his, his mother, uh, his fiance, so that his fiance Mary and his sister Elizabeth would, would not waver or worry about his, his soul. He wrote these words, September 11, 1918. Tomorrow, the first totally American drive commences, and it gives me inexpressible joy and pride to know that I shall be present to do my share. Should I go under, therefore, I want you to know that I went without any terror of death, that my chief worry is the grief my death will bring to those so dear to me. Since having found myself and Mary, there has been such make, make life sweet and glorious, but death, while distasteful, is in no way terrible. I feel wonderfully strong to do my share well, and for my sake, you must try to drown your sorrow in the pride and satisfaction and the knowledge that I died well in so clean a cause, as is ours, should bring you. Remember how proud I have always been of your superb pluck. Keep Elizabeth's future in mind, and don't permit my death to bow your head. My personal belongings will be sent to you. Your good taste will tell you what to send to Mary. God bless you and keep you, dear heart. And be kind to little Elizabeth and those who I love so well. David, the end. Well, the German forces broke through the American line the next day, and David Kerr, a 20-year-old college student, lost his life. Something happens when you are in war. It sharpens the reality of your mortality. Those who go to war face their mortality every day. It literally could happen every day where they could live and breathe no longer. Now, we know that any one of us could die today, whether that's through a car accident, through an aneurysm. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. But there's something in war that, that sharpens our, our minds, the reality that, that we will not be here forever. Soldiers face this reality. They face their frailty and the uncertainty of future every single day at war. Now, war is an awful thing. It's one of the worst things in our world. And yet, God has, has used war to awaken 
people's souls to their own mortality. And that is a gift from His hand. Our mortality is instructive. A healthy understanding of your creaturely state, your frailty, your limited life should change how we live today. It actually should give you a heart of wisdom in how you live each and every day. So a Christian worldview, although it views death differently, it's not morbid, but it actually helps you maximize joy and hope in this life. So I pray that we see from our text four things. Number one, you want to follow along in the outline provided for you. Point number one, we want to see your prideful boast. See your prideful boast. Look at verse 13. James begins, says, come now. So he's trying to draw attention to the, those who he was writing. Remember, he just spoke about wisdom, false wisdom and true wisdom, and warning against worldliness and a plea to repentance as we looked at last week. And, and now he's continuing that plea to repentance in a very specific way. He says, come now, you who say. So he's trying to, to have draw out this in his, in his readers, those who actually say these words. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James wants to draw attention to that, 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 that call that we're going to go here and we're going to go there. We're going to spend a time in this town and that town. We'll make some money. We'll make some profit. And then we'll, we'll be done. Well, James wants you to see that that is a prideful and an arrogant boast because you do not know the future. Can we even hear, beloved, when we are boasting like that in our own conversations, when we talk about our plans and our futures, are we saying things like this? Are we boasting, thinking that we know what the future shall hold? Does our mouth reveal what is going to happen about the future. Well, the Bible says it's a boast. But what is the root? What is the, the root? So if this is the, the things that you see in Scripture. There's the fruit, what we see. And then we want to dig back from the fruit to the root. Why is this boasting happen? Why does, does this, James, even call this boasting? Well, at, at, at its core, it's pride. That, that people who are saying this are not giving any account to God, not viewing Him as Creator, but they're viewing themselves as the only sovereign, that I can do what I want to do when I want to do it with my life. The heart that goes unchecked after its own desires. It's selfish. We want what we want regardless of what God thinks. I know that we're, many of us here are, are, are believers and followers of, of Christ, and yet so often I think that we live in, in this way. We may kind of tip our hat to the Lord, but re- in reality we just do what we want to do and pay little attention to what God would have us do. If you want to just hold your place in, in this Bible, I want you to turn back a few uh, chapters to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is, is warning uh, kind of has a similar warning in in chapter 6, verse 3. I'm going to read 3 through 13, so I want you to stick with me. Chapter 6, beginning the second half of of verse 2. It says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, 
He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into the many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul, the one who, who started churches and who was willing to be beat and stoned and, and shipwrecked for the gospel of Christ, he says when it comes to financial gain and the temptation to be rich, he says, run away from it. Flee these things. Because what it can do, that desire for wealth, and I think if you look in our, in our culture, the desire for comfort and more and plethora, that desire in your heart, what it can do to you, it can lead you away from your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's not worth it. Run from it. Now we go back to, to James. I think this is what we see here. I, I see this, this lack of contentment with our, our world, the things that we have, the possessions that we have makes us produce more and bigger and faster things. It's the driving force, I think, of the, the contemporary world is more. It's, it's this, this underlying greed. Even how we view politics today. We have, politics are almost decided whether we have a good economy or a bad economy. Whoever the president is, if, he, if he's making more wealth and he's making more comfort and he's bringing more ease, He's doing a great job. If he's not, things are going awry. Well, what happens is, is that people are discontent with their lives. This is why I think we see this in James. I'm going to go to this town and that town, and I'm going to make a profit. I think this underlining, I'm not going to include God in my plans, but ultimately what I want is, is resources, is money. And what you see here is you see God in his kindness says, you do not know what tomorrow brings. What is your life? What I think James is doing here, he's trying to give his readers a little bit of humble pie. <laughs> you do not know what tomorrow will hold. I, I, if I ever want a, a little bit of dose, if I'm ever kind of getting puffed up in my own head, and one thing that I, I often do is I read uh, the end of Job. So if you have your... You just hold your place, and I want you to just read a few verses. Go to Job, which is in the Old Testament. Okay, go to Job 38. So if those of you who know Job, there's this, this conversation that God takes a lot of things from Job. He takes his, his wealth. He takes his, his family. He takes his health. He takes all his wealth. And there's this, this kind of back and forth of, of, of why this is happening to Job, this kind of questioning of God and questioning of who he is. And then in Job chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and just listen to the power of which God speaks. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And who stretched the line up upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling brand and prescribed limits of for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus shall you come and no farther, and there shall your proud waves be stayed. Go to verse chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats gave birth? Do you observe the calvings of, their, their, that, of, of that does? Can you number the, the months that they fill? And do you know the time when they give birth or when they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered to their, to their young? Jump down to verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with mane? With a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from it. Chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. What you have is you have two whole chapters of God saying, I'm God. I'm the creator. Be quiet. Sometimes this is what you want to do with your kids, right? I'm the dad. Be quiet, right? Well, this is, this is helpful for us because that's kind of the relationship that God wants with us. And so often we live as if we know everything, that we have everything figured out. And God says, I am God. Humble yourself before me. We are prone to live in the mind of Adam where we are the ruler and the king and the only sovereign of the universe. But friends, we are but a man or woman created in God's image. We are not the creator. We are frail. Beloved, every time we live as if we are God, it is arrogant. It is prideful, as we shall see. So what do we do? We see that we, we have a, a prideful boast. And number two, we, we submit to a short life. We submit to a short life. Listen to what verse 14 says. It says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, sometimes we think about, you know, even the, the verse that Bobby read in, in Psalm 90, that God is from everlasting to everlasting means that God doesn't have a beginning and God doesn't have an end. We have a beginning and we have an end. We have a very short time in this life. This is a common refrain throughout the Scriptures. Psalm 103, 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, where the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. I mean, do you view your life as, as grass? Do you, do you view your life as, as the flower of grass? You see those, those flowers that bloom? They're beautiful, aren't they? 
and then a, a week later they're gone. The wind passes over and, and they're over. And that's what the Lord says about our life. We, we, we're here for such a short time period. This is the same thing in Psalm 90, verse 9 and through 12. I think it's instructive for us. It says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or years of strength, 80. Yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Those who have lived long lives, 70, 80, 90 years, if you ask them how quick their life went by, they'll say, the flash. Where did the time go? And we're in that season where we celebrate birthdays in the fall. So we have one in October, we have two in November, we have one in, in December, and we just kind of think like, where did the time go? You used to be so small, and now you're big and thinking and growing. And like, that's just, that's life. And so often we don't live like life is that short. And I think what God is telling us is that submit to that. In Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, he says this, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The goal is not to constantly thinking that our life is going to be over, that we could, we could die at any second. No, the, 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 the mindset is that, that we can die at any moment, that we only have 70 or 80 years on this earth. Make the most of them. I said it last week that the average American spends six hours of their life watching television, right? Is that how you want to live your short 70 or 80 years? Beloved, no, we want to understand that one day we're going to go before the Lord. We have this short life. Let's make the most of it. So are you, are you submitting to a short life? Where are you giving your pursuits? Let me just kind of make a caveat. It's, as we read this, it's not bad to make plans. Okay? I mean, Scripture, Proverbs 69, the heart of a man places his way, uh, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty only comes to ruin. Even the Lord Jesus, in, in, in Luke 14, he, he says to, to, to the king, before he goes out to battle, he should count how many troops he has. Hey, if you're going to build a tower, make sure you have enough supplies. So I, I don't think what James is saying here is don't plan. I think God has given us minds to plan. That's a good thing. But when you plan on your own, without the Lord, it's arrogant and boastful and prideful and sinful and evil. We want to give our lives to the Lord. So we make two ways that you can submit your life, submit yourself to a short life, okay? Two things. Number one, pour out your life for the Lord. Pour out your life for the Lord. Uh, one of the, the, the beauties of memorizing Scripture is that when you memorize Scripture, kind of like books of the Bible or long passages, certain passages that you would never normally memorize kind of become verses that, are, that really start to shape you. You don't even realize it's happening. But when I memorized Philippians in college, um, chapter uh, 2, verse 17, just kind of always stuck with me. Uh, it said, Paul saying, he says, Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering for the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. You too should be glad and rejoice with me. Beloved, we have a very short time in this life, and I pray we are poured out for the Lord 
that we give ourselves to the Lord, right? You know, I don't think that life is, is called to, uh, to, be, to be wasted. Uh, one of my life verses is, is Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, Jesus Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works within me. Beloved, I love to labor that you would be mature in Christ. Our elders love to labor that you would be mature in Christ. We want to pour ourselves out. And we pray you want to pour yourselves out for your children, that they may become mature in Christ. You want to pour yourselves out for your grandchildren, that they may be mature in Christ. You want to pour yourself out for your neighbors and your coworkers, that they may be mature in Christ. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You know, one of the things I see that's kind of happening to our nation, I think it's, I can say our nation because I think it, it kind of, it's outside of the church, right? I think this is true in many ways of the church, maybe not as much of our church, uh, but I think of, of the church in general and, and America at large is that we don't really have a lot of grit anymore. We don't really have a lot of, of, of backbone and, and work ethic. We, 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 have a, we kind of have a lazy nation, right? We would rather sit down and rest than give ourselves to a cause bigger than ourselves. But that was not true, I don't think, of our nation back in the, in the 20s and 30s and, and 40s and 50s, right? And even maybe on into the 60s. But I think the invention of the television and technology, what has it done? It has, it has lazified our, our, our culture, right? That's not a word. I made it up, but it's a good word. Lazified, right? Not in my notes, but it's a great word. I'm using it. Coin it. But I, I, I think what happens, this is often true for the church as well, right? You know, listen, if you are in your 20s and you have all the strength and all the energy in the world, give yourself to the church, Give yourself to memorizing Scripture. Give yourself to serving others because there's going to come a time when you're not going to have the time. You have children. You have jobs, and you don't have the energy, right? I mean, I'm only 38, and it's hard to get out of bed, you know, at 5 or, or 6 or 7, right? It's hard because as you get older, you, you don't have the same energy as you once did. And I wish back I could go back and tell my young self and say, listen, give yourself. Give yourself to the church. Give yourself to writing God's word upon your heart. I am still bearing fruit in my life today of, like I just told you, of memorizing things when I was 22. Memorizing the book of Philippians. Guess what? It's still bearing fruit in my life 16 years later. So give yourself to the Lord. Point number one. If you want to submit to a short life, understand that time is short. Labor hard. Number two, sleep well. Number two, sleep well. Psalm 127 says this, verses 1 and 2. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved in his sleep. It's a wonderful verse, is it not? That God gives his beloved in their sleep. And I think that when we labor hard, sometimes we think that it depends upon you. 
And this is why you have to have these in tandem. You want to give yourself to the things of God and give yourself to your children and to the, to the church and to, and to the Word of God, but you also have to sleep. You have to rest because you are not God. There is only one God. We are frail. You know, Gary, Pastor Gary and I were talking this week. It says, you know, God never slumbers or sleeps. But even the most powerful human being on the planet sleeps like a baby. We, we can't fight that. If we don't have sleep, our brains will, will crack. We need it. And sleep is God's way of reminding us, sit down, little one. I'm the creator, and you are just a creature. Sleep. And I think this, this helps those of you who, who, who are here and may not be Christians some of you are just kind of checking out Christianity and trying to see what, what, what do I believe about, about the Lord and about Jesus. Have you ever considered what it means that you get tired? What it means that you get sleepy? Maybe could, could it be that this is just a subtle way that you are a creature and you're not the creator? If God says he, he never tires or, or sleeps or slumbers, yeah, you know, we do. We are creatures. We are mortal. We're frail. We're weak. Last night at dinner, I was talking to uh, another former athlete, and we were just recounting all the ways we've hurt ourselves in our 30s and uh, about how we have torn Achilles and pulled hamstring and pulled groins, uh, trying to go against members in basketball. Um, it's just every time that happens, it's just a reminder that I'm perishing, right? One day I will die. If you are here and you're not a Christian, the, 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 the fact that you're, 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 you're sleeping, the fact that your body is, is maybe not as strong as it once was, maybe that's a reminder to you that, that one day you're going to die. Those are kind of subtle reminders throughout your life. Well, when you die, what will happen then? The Bible says is you can't escape that reality. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason why we have, 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 have feeling our, our, the effects of the fall and, and are slowly dying and perishing is because of sin. It's, that's a reminder to us that we need a Savior. And God in His kindness gave us one. I love, read Romans 5 this afternoon. A beautiful picture of, of what Paul is trying to help us see in this, this idea of the, of, of, of the trespass and the free gift. The trespass, the sin of Adam brings death. But the free gift of salvation brings life. And he says this, The free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For it's because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, Adam. Much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The free gift is offered to you today. Will you accept it? Will you accept that you are frail and that you will one day die? And that on that day, you need a redeemer. 
You need a substitute. You need one to stand before you and say, He, she is mine. I have paid for their sins in full. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I pray that you would turn to Christ. You would understand that He takes all who are weary and heavy laden and He will give you rest. To the believer, I would say this. I pray that when you think about your frailty and your creaturely state, that would help you overcome anxiety. We are not God. We can't fix everything. We can't get everything right. We can't solve all the world's problems. We can't solve our own problems. And yet we have this this thought that we, we should be doing better. So we have this is where we think we should be. This is where we are, and we have this whole gap of unmet expectations which causes anxiety and depression and sadness. And I see this is very common. Where we, are, where we want to be in life is not where we are, so therefore we get discouraged and frustrated. But beloved, you're, you're not God. This has helped me, this, this, this reality that I'm not God has helped me more than anything else in the ministry of here of Park Baptist Church. There are a lot of days where I feel the weight and the pressure of, of this church, where I feel the weight and the pressure that, that everything is depending on me, that the only way this thing is going to go is if I'm the one leading the charge. And when I get to that point, this is what God tells me to do. Sit down. Sit down. Your church does not need you. <laughs> yes, Lord. I am God. And the church will not prevail against, or the, the Satan will not prevail against my church. He's the chief shepherd. I am just an under shepherd. So I sit down. And I've been having to sit down a lot lately because my pride is, is bubbling up, saying, like, don't they need me? And God's saying, No, they need me. Your job as a pastor is to, is to help them see me, is help them to see Christ. Less of you, more of Christ. So how do we, how do we, how do we apply this idea of, of submitting to this laboring hard and, um, and sleeping well? Can I just say this? Actually, let me just make all these applications to the next point, right? Makes feel the sermons going along faster. Um, <laughs> point number three, seek the Lord's will. Seek the Lord's will. It says... Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. One of my former churches, it was kind of a a new experience for me. Everybody in the church always just said, if the Lord wills. It sounds like, you know, if the Lord wills, we'll have coffee. Okay, if the Lord wills, I'll see you this afternoon. If the Lord wills, I'll see you after I use the restroom. This is, you guys are taking this a little bit too far. And I went to the pastor and I just kind of, kind of said, yeah, it feels kind of weird. It feels like everyone is just kind of using this language. And, um, and w- what he was trying to do is he was trying to create a culture in his church that reminded us that we were creatures and not the creator. So that's the way he spoke. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, when he spoke about the future. And what it did is over time that the church adopted this idea of, of if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. 
And I think, although me as a young Christian looked at it and thought it was weird, I, I think he was right to help foster that in his, in his church. It's a culture of dependence on the Lord, really a culture of, of obedience. It says that when we don't, it's arrogant. And all such boasting is, is evil. Arrogance is to live without submission to God. But we want to live our life, what? All things are on the table. I'll obey the Lord whenever he calls me and wherever he calls me. I can look back in my life and I can, I, can, I can tell you certain things of my arrogant boast. I was married down the street at the Church of Our Savior, uh, uh, Episcopal Church. And I told my wife shortly before our wedding, I am never coming back to Rock Hill. Arrogant boast, right? I remember living in Washington, D.C. and, and telling uh, the church there, I am never leaving Washington, D.C. Arrogant boast, Right. I remember having a child, and before the child was born, I said, I am never going to give that child a pacifier. And on, on the first tears, here, here, <laughs> please stop crying. We make arrogant boasts all the time, right? And I don't think they even realize it, right? But beloved, what we want to do is we want to take our lives and we want to say this is an open hand before the Lord, you know? So if you are a, a college student, understand that your whole life is ahead of you, Right? If you're young, your whole life is ahead of you. Don't say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Say, Lord, what would you have me do? And if the Lord wills, I'll do this or I'll do that. Maybe the Lord is willing you to go overseas. Maybe the Lord is willing you to stay right here and be a member of Park Baptist Church forever. If the Lord wills it, it's not about what anybody else wants. It's not even about what you want. It's about what the Lord wants with your life. So don't be anxious and overwhelmed. Where am I going to be? What am I going to do? Just say, Lord... My life is yours. Those of us who have kind of lived a little bit, we look at all the zigzags that God brought in our life. And, and I mean, honestly, it's, it's, we say, yeah, we had no clue when we were 20 or 3 or 24, or 25, what God was going to do with our life. But the Lord knew. We plan our course, but the Lord directs our steps. If you're here and you're, you're retired, you're in that kind of that grandparent stage, I, I pray that you would, you would use your retirement as a gift and, and not as a gift for your own comfort, right? I pray that you would take your retirement and say, okay, I have, I have so many years left of my life. I want to use them for the Lord. How can I use the strength that I have for the Lord and His glory and not for my own comfort? I think too many Christians who have been bought with the American dream want to spend their retirement on their own comfort and themselves. Don't do that. Guess what? Your, your hands are like this. Lord, what will you have me do with my life? Children, listen to your parents, right? Obey them. But think right now that God could be molding you and, and discipling you and developing you so that you could be a greater uh, tool in the Lord's army, right? We, we want to, to, to shoot you out into the world, Right? We want to shoot you out into the world so that you could be mighty forces for the kingdom of God, right? So don't waste your time remembering song lyrics that you will hate when you're 35, right? Remember scripture. Write those things upon your heart. That's what we want to be about. Parents, life is short. Kids grow fast. Do the hard work of discipleship. You know, uh, 
recently, this has been a wonderful blessing. Uh, we've had a lot of folks join, join the church recently, and uh, one young man came and asked me, um, Pastor, I get this question a lot, Pastor, I, I don't expect to be here very long. Um, should I join the church? And sometimes I have a lot of grace, and I speak with a lot of decorum, right? But if you catch me after a service, I, I'm usually pretty tired, and I'll just kind of tell you my first thought. And this is what I said. I said, well, should you, should you wait to obey God? Well, no. Well, then you should probably join the church. Because I think church membership is an act of obedience to the Lord. Right? Should, I, should I wait six months or a year before I obey the Lord in, in some areas of my life? Well, no, you, you obey the Lord now. Right? Now, we know there's a lot of reasons why people don't join the, the, the church. You know, um, Sometimes people are actively pursuing church membership. They're trying to check a church out to, to see if, if we can give our life to that church. Amen. You know, some people haven't been taught well and don't think that they need to join a church. But the Bible's very clear that the eye can't say to the, to the hand, I have no need of you. Right? When, you, when you don't join a church forever, what you're basically saying is, I'm a hand, I'm a foot, and I don't need anything else. I don't need any other member of the body. I pray that you would repent of that, right? Because God wants you to obey now because you don't know your future. What is your life? You're, you're a mist. You're, you're here one minute and gone the next. Don't waste your, your time by, 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 by pretending that you're going to futurely obey the Lord. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Obey the Lord today. Some people have been hurt by, by churches. That's a, that's a real thing. If you've been in relationships that have been hurt, sometimes it's hard to kind of re-engage in relationships. And if you've been hurt by a church and by a pastor, sometimes it's hard to join a church. But can I just encourage you, work through that, because God wants you to be a member of a local body. But I think the number one reason why I think that people don't join a church, I think it's kind of tied up in this passage, that's why I bring it up, is that people like their individual freedom and they don't want to be inconvenienced with loving other people. And that's what happens when you're part of a church. People have a need and guess what? You are obligated by God to meet that need, to pray for them, to bear with them, to, to forgive them, to love them, to, to, to serve them. That's what God commands you to do. It's easier to live your life community-less, but I don't think it's the way God would have you. What is God's goal for your life? Your sanctification. What does God want me to do with my life? He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be like Him. He wants you to be mature and complete. So how do we seek the Lord's will? Well, we pray. We pray, what would God have us do? We study the Scriptures. Lord, what is, reveal yourself to me in your word. And three, I would say, just ask your, your leaders. Come to the elders of your church and say, is this a good thing for me? This is one of the reasons why if you're, if you're only going to be here for six months, you should go in all in with the church. Why? So that now you have, you have people praying with you and helping you navigate the next big decisions of your life. Because things happen. Things may change. Well, isn't it good and right to have people in your life to encourage you in that moment? Well, lastly, let me conclude. Um, number four, we want to succeed in the right thing. Succeed in the right thing. We see that in verse 17. It says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There's some things that are black and white in Scripture that people try to convince you based on their conscience, whether they feel right or wrong about something, and that's usually just sinful. 
because they're trying to get to do something that, that God clearly says they can't do. You know, but, but there's, there's some gray areas there. For example, I'll give you an example. Um, who should I marry? Well, it's clear in Scripture that you should not be unequally yoked. If you're a Christian, you should marry a Christian. That's pretty clear in Scripture. But there's a lot of gray areas. When should I marry? How much money should I have in savings before I get married? You know, all those kind of questions, are, those are gray areas. You know, we want to seek wisdom from, from the Lord. I remember when my wife and I were, uh, we visited my last uh, job. Uh, I ran a group home for teenage mothers, and we, we set foot on the property. And my wife, after our tour and kind of interview, she looked at me and said, Dave, I think that we would be sinning against God if we didn't take this job. Now, my wife normally doesn't speak that kind of language, right? Which immediately said, okay, I should probably listen to this. But she could have been wrong. I mean, she's not the Holy Spirit, right? So she could have been wrong. Uh, by, by God's grace, we, we felt led there. We felt that the Holy Spirit was pressing us to, to, to go there. And it was a very sweet experience for our family, a challenging one that really, really grew us. You know, so, but I think for us, because the Lord was leading us that way, because we, we kind of felt after confirmation from family and friends, that if we didn't walk in that, walk in that way, that we would have been sinning against God. Because we felt the Lord leading us that way. And if we would have said no, because it was hard, or because we didn't want to do it, well, then I think that we were sinning against God. Well, beloved, we, we want to obey the Lord. We want to seek Him. So I think He leads us by His Spirit, by His Word. But that just doesn't mean because you feel like it's the right thing, that it is the right thing. Because you could be wrong. You could be wrong. But... I'd rather have you obey the Lord the way that you feel the Lord is leading you. Uh, I, I, um, I coach flag football on Saturdays with my kids. It's awesome. You really should come out Saturday morning and watch this. It's, it's, a, it's a work of art. Um, but one of the things I always try to say is I don't care if you make a mistake, right? Just play hard, right? Just go at it full speed. Listen, I think the Christian life is meant to be pursued with zeal, Right? Romans 12, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Sometimes God wants you just to give yourself, give yourself to the serving of his name. Well, one young college student was heading to the mission field. He wrote this in his journal. Grieve not then if your son seems to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. What is a greater than watching a child or a grandparent or a college student or any church member doing the will of God. Well, that same missionary never returned home, uh, but his obedience to the will of God was not foolish. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, Jim Elliott lost his life on January 8th, 1956, along with nine other missionaries to try to reach the people of Ecuador with the glorious gospel of, of Christ. Now, many would view his life as, as tragic, but it was according to the plan of the Lord. Jim Elliott was able to give his life in service to the Lord because he knew that that was the safest place to be. Eternally, the safest place to be eternally was to do the Lord's will. He wrote in his journal, When the time comes to die... Make sure that all you have to do is die. 
Meaning, are you ready to die? If the Lord was going to call you today, because our life is a mist, here one minute and gone the next, are you ready? Romans 14.7 says this, For none of us lives to himself, or none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, or we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might be Lord, that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. So that question, what is your life? It is the Lord's. Beloved, life is a breath. We are here one minute and gone the next. If the Lord wills, we will live to the Lord. If the Lord wills, we will die to the Lord. Beloved, I pray that we would be a if the Lord wills kind of people. We belong to him every minute, every hour, every day, every year, every decade. Let us be if the Lord wills kind of people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we as a congregation would be a Lord's will people. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. We ask this through our Lord Jesus. Amen.